Hello and welcome everyone. My name is Andrew Krauss. Welcome to another EventRight live question and answer stream. Um, just talking a bunch, so I'm going to take a sip of water here. I want to welcome you to the program. Um, we always have a, just a few people joining and then like, I don't know, it seems like always a bunch of people join like 10, 15 minutes in. So for those of you that join early, make sure to type your questions so that... Uh, so that you can be first. Um, so just a little bit about InventRight. We've been coaching inventory inventors for the last 21 years. Stephen Key and myself, my name is Andrew Krauss, we're the co-founders, and we've had students in over 65 countries. So what do we coach inventor inventors to do? We coach inventor inventors to license their products. So what is licensing? With licensing, basically, um, you don't need to raise money, you don't need employees, and you don't need to start a business. So because that big company is going to invest their money, the company that you license to, if you've got a new doorstop invention, they're making doorstops and other things for the house, and maybe they have 40, 50 other products. So they're going to tap into their distribution network. They're going to tap into their workforce. They're going to tap into their money. And then your product is just one more product in their product line. So it's a beautiful thing. And then you get paid royalties quarterly. So that's what licensing is. Your other option is to manufacture and sell the product yourself. Usually for most products, you need to raise hundreds of thousands of dollars, dump everything else you're doing and start a business. You could do it on some little small scale and sell on eBay or something like that. But most people that really are serious about venturing their product, um, you need it's, it's all encompassing. It's 60, 80 hour work weeks. When you're licensing, you're putting that responsibility off onto the licensee. You're the licensor as the inventor or license or, and the licensee is the company that's making the product and selling it in the retailer where you want to be. So if a company, you've got this cool new doorstop and you reach out to a company that's selling doorstops or other things in Walmart, that's where they're going to be selling the product. They're going to do pretty much whatever they already do. So if they sell cheap products, they're going to sell a cheap version. If they sell expensive ones, they're going to sell expensive version. And don't ask companies to do something dramatically different what they do. I mean, the product can be new, but don't ask them to sell bicycle accessories when they just do boxing equipment. You know what I mean? Um, and so that's just some some basics. But what's it's a beautiful thing, licensing, because you can think big. And I always joke, you can have delusions of grandeur and you're not delusional. So it depends on the size of the company, but maybe they're selling 10, 20,000 units a year, 50, 100, quarter million, 3 million units a year. It depends on the product and the price of it. So when you license your product, that big company, and they take on all that work, you are that big company in a way. So it's amazing what you can do with licensing. You can dream big without all the financial risk and without all that work. But you still need to do the work to license it to that one company. And our students will typically, we call our clients students, will typically reach out to 20 or 30 companies. And sometimes you only have eight or 10, that's fine. But if there's 20 or 30, you want to reach out to them. And most of what you're going to get is no's. Um, but you only need one. Yes. And the ones that said no did not reject you. If you got this cool new kitchen accessory and then they say no, and let's say 28 say no and two show interest. Well, the 28 that said no, you didn't waste your time. You got their name, you got their email, maybe their phone number, maybe their LinkedIn account. And then when you come up with another kitchen gadget, you're right in there. So that's the beautiful thing about licensing is you can leverage those relationships. 
which is great. So go ahead and start typing your questions into the uh, into the chat, and I'll answer them. Um, and oh, a little disclaimer: um, nothing nothing we share today is my head's a little itchy today for some reason. Uh, uh, nothing we share should be considered legal advice. Please consult an attorney before moving forward with um, with anything. And I'm just offering general business advice for educational purposes. My fun little disclaimer. Um, Tachi said, look, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that, Tashai, maybe. Looking forward to the session. Yeah, great, Tashai. Um, don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. Uh, King said, hey, Andrew, I'm Don. Um, well, your name is Don. Your, your handle was King, um, little John. Um, Don, I was wondering if I could license a product through a manufacturer, then later make apparel to that same product. Make apparel. Oh, well, that's interesting. So what you're saying is license the product and then make apparel for that brand. Well, you know, if they are selling this product and it's selling well um, and they want to build up a line of apparel, around that product, you know, maybe that company you license to does apparel, maybe they don't, but that's kind of their product. Now it's yours. You're renting it to them and you can take it back if they don't perform. I don't know if you guys know that, but you don't sell your patent. You don't sell your invention when you're licensing, you rent or you lease it. If they're falling down on your contract, licensing contract, you can take it back. So, um, but while it's with them, it's theirs. And so do they want you to start a clothing line if they don't do a clothing line to support that brand? They might be okay with that. Maybe you license to another company that does the clothing for it. And they're like, oh, cool, that supports our brand. You know, so it's, you know, without knowing specifically your product, on that's kind of an unusual scenario. Um, it might be possible. It just needs to make sense for them. But let's say they're making... Um, Let's say they're making kitchen gadgets and it doesn't really make sense for a line of clothing. Let's say it's the sporting good products. They make sporting goods, but they don't do the clothing part of it. And then you're going to try to convince them, you guys should do clothing. You guys should do clothing. Maybe you can convince them of that, but maybe you just say, look, I want to license this to another manufacturer that does clothing and we'll support the brand and we'll even give you a, a royalty over here. That might make sense. That was an unusual question, but a fun one. Um, v said, who would I need to contact about licensing an idea to a theme park resort, such as Universal Studios Resort? Um, okay, well, the question is, uh, who the resort? So you want to do the resort. So I'll, I'm going to use Disney as an example and Universal, same thing. Um, a lot of products that are sold, universal products, I know Disney, that's very true. Disney doesn't make most of their products. So my eight-year-old daughter is into this new Disney show, Descendants. It's like a series, it's like a movie series. Um, or it could be Mickey Mouse, or it could be Cars, or it could be any of that. Um, they don't, they usually, what they, what they do is they brand license. So they brand license the right for a manufacturer that makes t-shirts and coffee mugs book Mickey Mouse. And those companies need to pay a pretty penny, pretty ridiculous royalties to Disney. So they just make it simple. They're like, we don't need to make stuff. We'll just get this huge royalty for our brand to put the brand on products. So um, there's a lot of that going on. And so when you want to license a product with Mickey Mouse, realize that the company that's making it, which is most of the time not Disney, 
needs to pay a royalty to Disney and a royalty to you. And you should almost always accept a lower royalty rate because you're going to sell more because everybody knows Mickey Mouse or whatever Disney or Universal characters there are. Now, I think we had a student licensed to the Disney theme parks. That's a little bit different. They probably, I think most of the time, they will make their own stuff there and then sell it at their theme parks. So, you know, you're saying, would I need to, who would I need to contact about licensing ideas to a theme park resort such as Universal? So I would contact the theme parks themselves. If you looked at the equip, the, um, the products that are actually sold in the theme park, and you turned over the package, you might see that it's not universal. It's another company that's selling that product. And then you could license to them and then they could sell it in the theme park. So it'd either be the theme park or a theme park licensee, um, a manufacturer that's making and selling products in the theme park. So there's a good question, V, and a fun question. You guys got good questions today so far. All right. Um, you think my bottle's big enough? It's like you need a smaller bottle. So, um, Hassan, you gave me two parts. Hi, Andrew. I have an idea for a board game that I would like to license. After some research, I found no patents, but there is already an existing app for that game. Is it considered prior art? Um, can I establish some kind of ownership and a licensing deal since there is no actual patents regarding the board game? its components and nobody sells it. So most of the time board games aren't patented. You can't patent a board game a lot of the time because um, if there's no moving parts and has no functionality, usually your protection with the board game is gonna be a copyright or trademark. So if the board game has a particular, um, sorry for hitting my desk there. If the board game has a particular um, trademark like a name that's trademarkable just like clothing you know it's that brand name calvin klein you don't can't put calvin klein in something else because you got a strong brand name and then it's it's the rules so it's really nice with board games you just copyright the rules that's the protection nine times out of ten with board games hassan um and then like if a, if a, I'll give you a game, I don't know if you guys remember that game Mousetrap. You can type it into Google if you don't. It has a lot of moving parts and has functionality. So in that case, there you could claim functionality and you could get a patent on it. But most board game inventors aren't filing patents. So it's mostly copywriting the rules, which is actually good for you, way cheaper and easier to protect than a patent. So um, now... The, so that's inf good information for everybody with a board game. But you said uh, you found a game. Uh, let's see. I found no patents, but there is already an existing app for that game. Is it considered prior art? Um, yeah, it's it's so basically if if the game works in a similar way and they're, again, copywriting the rules, you don't want to be in violation of their copyright on how that works. So you can't just take a video game and then just say, I'm going to make a board game out of it. And those they're, they've probably copyrighted the rules if they're smart. So you have to figure out if you're in violation of their copyright, if they're rules. So that wouldn't be fair. Um, but if it's different enough, maybe it's okay. I can't say without looking at it, of course. Um, uh, Time Lizard said, it's been a minute since I checked out the stream. So welcome back, Time Lizard. And for those of you that want me to read your real first name, which I appreciate, Although the handles are tons of fun, just type in your name as well. 
and just say, hey, this is Bob or what have you. Uh, Melanie said, hi, Andrew. Sorry, I'm getting these notifications on my computer. I'm going to turn those off so I can focus on helping you guys. Um, Melanie says, hi, Andrew. Thanks for being so consistent with the one-hour sessions. They really make a difference for us. You're welcome, Melanie. Um, Melanie with the O-N-I-E. That's an interesting spelling of Melanie. I bet people get that wrong all the time. Um, Jose said, what if my idea, what if my idea is submitted and had at least seven emails and now nothing is that good, is that a good sign? What if my idea is submitted and had at least seven emails and now nothing, is that a good sign? So I don't think there's any sign one way or another, Jose, when you have a list of companies, you're going to reach out to every single one until you get a no from all of them. And then even then you're not done. I tell our students, reach out six or eight months later to companies that said no. If they didn't give you a specific reason why not. If they didn't say no because of this. Well, then if you can't fix it, you're done with that company. But they give you non-specific no's a lot of the time because they're just busy. And if you reach out again six or eight months later, you might get them in this time where their boss said they need new products and the same one said no is now showing interest. Um, so, you know, don't read anything into it. Yeah. It sounds like you were doing great. You got seven responses. I don't know if they just asked you for more information, what have you just keep pushing forward till you get a no from everybody. And even then you're not done, probably work on another project, then come back to it. Um, if you really believe in it now, if they're telling you things that they believe are wrong with it and you have to ask for them to tell you that, and you can't fix it. Now, if one tells you, ah, that might just be their opinion. But if like three or four people tell you, oh, you got to fix that. There's something wrong. Or if they tell you, look, I don't understand this product. And a couple, then you realize, oh, my marketing sucks, which most inventors that aren't our students, when I see their marketing piece, their sell sheet or video, it's not good enough, guys. Your sell sheets suck. Um, you really, it's very rare that I see an inventor with a good enough marketing piece. They need to get it in six to 10 seconds. So I've given this tip before. Um, on my YouTube show on this live stream, and I'll give it to you again. Um, if you have a video or a sell sheet, a sell sheet is a one-page PDF advertisement for your product. It's not for the company. It's for their customer, okay? You want them to look at it and go, oh, if my customer saw this for kitchen gadgets or gardening or whatever the product is, they would get it right away. So what you want to do, and this only works, this works with absolutely anybody in your life or not in your life, some stranger, um, and put it on a laptop or you can put it on a desktop and whether it's a video or a PDF sell sheet and stand behind the computer, show it to them. It can't be anybody you've ever shown it to before because, you know, it's your mom or, you know, your spouse or your kids are like, oh, yeah, this is great. This is great. So what you're looking for is looking for confusion on their face or listen to the questions they ask. Answer nothing. Just look at them. Look to see if they're confused. Look to see how quickly they get it, if they get it at all. And listen to the questions they ask and do not respond when they ask questions. Just let them keep asking questions. And so if that happens and they're not getting it, it doesn't matter if it's your critical Uncle Phil or if it's your super supportive mom, you're getting the feedback either way or a stranger. So I highly recommend you do this. And I tell you, if most of you do this, you're going to realize, oh, it's not good enough. Because this is what you need to understand is, when a marketing manager that's super busy, they got many projects, a couple bosses, inundated with email, they will not take the time to go through a slide deck, like a multi-page PowerPoint. They will not read this long email. They won't even go to your website and dig through that. Those are all sucky approaches to 
uh, marketing your product for licensing. It needs to be a one page, eight and a half, one page, I don't know, circular, square, eight and a half by 11 PDF, which is has nice graphics, bullet points, benefit statement. I get the product. I get the benefit of the product. Or if it's a video under 60 seconds and you're not losing them in the first 15 seconds, um, but one of those two things. And so that is a really, really good tip. doesn't cost you anything. You don't need to sign up for our coaching to do that. Um, but then when you realize, oh, that's not working, you need somebody to help you with it, whether it's an InventRight coach or somebody else. But to reach out to 30 companies with a crappy sell sheet is just wasting your time. And I see inventors do it all the time. And it makes sense to you because you're wrapped up in the project. You've been thinking about it forever. But if somebody is looking at it for the first time, and that's why you need friends, family, strangers to have them look at it for the first time. You've never shown it to them before. And it's a great tip. And I highly recommend you do that. Okay. Um, so to uh, Caleb said, hi, Andrew, a company seem, a company seem, I'm just going to read it the way you guys read, wrote it. Okay. Hi, Andrew, a company seemed to stay, sh to shy away when I showed them a prototype that was less complex than Finnish drawings. Um, have you ever heard this issue? I can't make them 100% like the drawings myself. Um, so a company seemed to shy away when I showed them a prototype that's less complex than a Finnish drawing. Yeah, you know, I mean, if a prototype is really crude and just blatantly duct taped together, it can be distracting. So what we do for our students is we create a virtual prototype for them. Now, I have students that create a prototype. Maybe it doesn't even work, but it looks like it works. And that's beautiful. You know, if it looks like it works, you can use that. It could be something, you, another product you cannibalized, you know, that you bought at the store. It doesn't work, but you have a picture. It relays the point because in the marketing, in the sell sheet, you're talking about how it works. And they're just assuming that it works. Perfectly fine to do that. People trip out on that. But you can also get a virtual prototype done. It's not an engineering thing, but it's just something that looks um, pretty. And we do that for our students. I'd say 70% of our students, we do a virtual prototype for them. You know? Um, uh, so, so, yeah. So I don't know. But also, Caleb, I find a lot of people, they when they start putting themselves out there, which is great, good on you guys for putting yourselves out there and reaching the companies, is like one thing happens with one company or it happens twice. And now you're making all sorts of assumptions that this is the way it always is. And so that's the real big benefit of having InventRight coach. They can tell you like, well, that's just a really bizarre question. Like, you know, that the company asked you, but here's how I'd answer it, right? Or they could say, oh, they're going to say that all the freaking time, you know, and here's how you're always going to handle it. Companies will always say that. So I find that people make assumptions based on two and statistics as there's something called a sample size, too small of a sample size of experience. And you're making all these assumptions and using your imagination and you haven't really done licensing before. So um, you may be doing that, Caleb, but, you know, use your best judgment, which when people are new to this, they don't really have good judgment about what is acceptable to show. But then also people are too critical. They're like, oh, God, I need this perfect, beautiful production prototype. And they go out and spend eight grand on that. I'm like, why do you need to do that? It's completely unnecessary. It's obvious how this thing is going to be made. You could have bought that thing at the store for 29 bucks, changed it up a little bit, or just done a virtual prototype for a few bucks. 
why did you go out? Why did, because, oh, but I knew they would need that. Like, why did you know that? I don't know that. I've been doing this for 21 years. I haven't found that to be true. So um, people make all sorts of assumptions. And, you know, it, our YouTube channel is about breaking down those assumptions. So uh, Sforza said, uh, enjoy your live stream, Andrew. Thank you. Um, uh, Matt said, good afternoon, Andrew. I have an idea for an apparel line. I want to pitch to Nike and Adidas only because they have the star athlete. Do you know if they take outside submissions? So first of all, if you're working on an apparel product, just take out your gun and shoot yourself in the head right now because um, it's next to impossible. Now, if it's and nobody do that, by the way, I'm just making a joke. I think you guys all know that. All right. Um, so it, it doesn't make it that interesting. Then when I have to do the disclaimer after that, I'm trying to emphasize, you know, trying to be extreme. So you guys pay attention. But um, so if, if you have a functional clothing product, OK, but all the, the clothing business does is knock each other off. It's what everybody thinks is true about all inventions, which is not true. I've had one of our students knocked off in 21 years. Um, that, I, that I'm aware of. Um, but in the clothing business, all they do is one designer comes out with something, the other one designer knocks it off. And so if it's a functional clothing product, great. But if you're looking at a piece of clothing, Nike and Adidas, good luck. Um, that's going to be next to impossible. Um, I think Nike says on their site they're not open, but don't quote me on that. I would check. Um, that's going to be really, really tough. Now, there are exceptions. If it's functional clothing and it's patentable, great. But that's just a brutal, brutal industry. So I'm not saying you can't work on apparel product. But it's an apparel product just with a certain style and no functionality, I wouldn't bother. But if it has functionality, which we have a fair amount of students that are doing those types of stuff now, then it's possible. But you need to let them know it has functionality. And Nike and Adidas are not easy to get a hold of. So look at their policies on the website. Reach out to them. I, I don't know what it is now, but I think in the past, I think I saw that Nike said straight up they aren't, but don't quote me on that. Go look on their website. Find out yourself. Um, Jose, how do you choose a great licensing attorney or does InventRight have recommendations? Um, we at InventRight help our students avoid licensing attorneys until the very, very final stage because they are not deal makers. They're deal killers. Now, I'm sure there's some good ones out there, but there's, I'll explain. So the most important part when you get interest is from initial interest, that initial email back. It's, by the way, which would be helpful for you guys, 95% of the time, they're not going to call you. They're going to email you back, okay? Because you send an email, they're going to email you back. So from that initial interest email to a contract is way more important than the contract to closed, okay? Again, Initial interest to the contract, way more important contract close. So if you don't do the things, do and say the right things from getting that initial interest, you're not going to get to a contract. And it's way more important. And licensing attorneys don't understand this. They start, your attorney starts fighting with their attorney. And there's a ton of stuff, a ton of stuff that you need to work out before you get to a contract. They need to get some quotes overseas. They need to talk about this, talk about that, talk about all sorts of different things. OK, and you need to move that forward with the company. So to think like, oh, when a second I get interest from the call licensing attorney, this is going to get happen. They're going to charge you two, three, four dollars an hour. They're going to nitpick the deal to death. They're going to piss the company off. Your attorney and their attorney is going to start arguing before you even got in a deal. And they're going to go, ah, forget about it. And guess what? That attorney is still going to send you a bill. So the way that we handle it is our negotiation coach helps our students how to, what to say to every email, what to say before, before every phone call. Now, the student 
Our student is the mouthpiece. They're the one replying the email. They're the one on every phone call, but we're prepping them. You'll forward the email to our negotiation coach, Paul. He'll say, this is exactly what you need to say back. And then you'll send it back. Before a call, he'll tell you exactly how to handle yourself on that call before you get on with them. And it will be different at different stages. Paul might say, well, given the prior emails, given the prior conversations, these are the main things we want to focus on. Here's one shocking thing that people that are new to licensing don't understand. You are way, 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 did I emphasize that enough? Way more responsible for moving the deal forward than the company. So the company's not going to go, oh, Bob, well, here's our formal process for licensing. We're going to do this and this. It's so messy. They will ask questions that aren't going to take move the deal forward. You can re-guide those questions. Other questions are good to ask, but you need to know what to say at different points so that you're guiding them actually most of the time more than they're guiding you. They're guiding you a little bit and you're guiding them a little bit. But if every time one of our students got interest from a company, we said, oh, you got interest. Instead of putting on with their negotiation coach, Paul, we said, oh, contact license attorney. They would kill 80% of the deals that our negotiation coach, Paul, helps people close. I am not kidding, guys. Now, I think licensing attorneys are great and we utilize them to dot the I's and cross the T's. So what we do is Paul will have you ask them for their contract. Okay. It's, and you can't always get this. Most of the time you can't. And they'll let them and their attorney spend the money on the contract and send it over to you. Now, what's kind of funny there is most, a lot of times it's really butchered contract. Like they may have general counsel, not a licensing attorney that wrote this thing. And Paul's like, this is barely a licensing contract. We don't care. Or it's a really good licensing contract, really like written like a regular licensing contract. It doesn't matter. Um, but you, you get that you get something back that you start it there. You start the negotiation. So Paul will then go point by point through the contract. Here's what's good. Here's what's bad. Here's what's missing. There was a ton of stuff missing, by the way. And then he'll tell you how to go back to them. And them and their attorney will make the changes. You're at no risk here because you are um, you're at no risk because you're not specifically, you're not signing anything, right? You're just negotiating these deal points, right? And so that goes back and forth, back and forth. And you don't have an attorney. You just have us guiding you as to what those deal points are. And you're not signing anything. We always tell students never, ever sign a licensing contract without a licensing attorney review it. So, but if you can't agree on the major deal points, why would you pay somebody two, three, four hundred $400 an hour, you know, to muck up the deal for you and make the company mad and not know how to handle this, all these deal points. So we know what those deal points are. So we guide you to guide them and you maybe debate some things, maybe other things are like, sure, we'll put that in there and let their attorney put it in there. And then when a deal is 95% done, Paul, our negotiation coach, will tell you so. He'll go, look, everything is good in this contract. Oh, before that, getting back to it, it could be like a really butchered contract, like really. And Paul will say where it's not a, it doesn't have all the typical licensing terms and stuff that's important, but it's a contract. It's part of the negotiation. Paul will just help you stuff all the stuff that's important into that and let their attorney answer, um, write it up. Okay. Um, but when a deal gets 95% done, Paul will say, look, this deal is done. It has all the major deal points, but you need a licensing attorney to dot the I's and cross T's just for an hour or two. So we tell our students never, ever sign a licensing agreement without an attorney reviewing it. But to negotiate and talk about the deal points, you can do that. But to think that the, a licensing attorney is going to fight for you, no, they're going to kill the deal for you. And they're going to rat, the more they nitpick the deal to death, the more billable hours they get, because let's, let's be honest, attorneys are about billable hours. 
Um, and then all licensing attorneys aren't bad. And some of them can be business savvy, but most of them aren't. And you think, well, that's what they do, Andrew. It's like, yeah, but they're not They're when you when there there's we handle it in a very friendly way. And you don't want to get very unfriendly. I mean, it gets a little uncomfortable sometimes with the negotiation, but that's okay. And anyway, so um, who asked that question? Let's see. Okay, apparel. Come uh, on, oh, sports idea. Anyway, I don't even remember who asked asked the question, but um, oh yes, yeah, Jose. Sorry, Jose. Um, so. My answer is how do you choose a great licensing attorney is you don't. Um, I'm biased, but you utilize us. And here's the thing that we do, because everything we do is about empowering you. We want you to go through a deal. So the next time you can say, I get it, guys. I know how to negotiate a deal. So you can negotiate a deal. Because if every time you get a little interest, because we have plenty of students, they, they reach out to 30 companies, get interest from five. Every time you get a little interest, you're like, oh, I'm going to stick my attorney on them. Stupid, stupid, stupid. Do not do that. And it will cost you a small fortune and it will kill deals and you're just, it's just not, not a good scene. Okay. So if you go through a deal with us, you're going to know, cause we've empowered you. We're not on the phone with you. We're not replying to the email, but we're telling you what to say the email. We're telling you what to say on every phone call, explaining the contract, explaining all the deal points. We want you to be able to get deals on your own. Anytime you get interest to 95%, they don't always get there. They fall off sometimes because debate different points. They choose not to work on it for a different reason or another. Maybe they can't make it a reasonable price or what have you. Um, but we want you to be able to get deals to 95% and then only use a licensing attorney when it's 95% done. So people all the time get really excited about provisional patents. Like, oh, great. I can spend 75 bucks on a provisional. So I don't need to spend 10 grand on a patent or two or you know, two or 25, 2000 or 2500 to pay an attorney to file a provisional. So, but they're not thinking about the tail end. And the tail end is once you start to get interest, if every time you run to an attorney, that's going to get really, really expensive and it's completely unnecessary. And it improves your chances of doing deal by not having an attorney involved because they just start arguing with each other and both attorneys benefit. You know, I mean, if it's in-house counsel, okay, they don't, they don't benefit, but they like to argue with each other. That's just what they do. And the more they do that, the more money they make, usually. Maybe not the in-house counsel, but in-house counsel, you know, that's within a company, like they like to build value for themselves, like, like they're important. And you know what? When they see you don't have an attorney, they let their guard down a little bit. It's a good thing. And you're never going to sign this thing without having an attorney review it, so it's no risk to you. That's the approach that we take, Jose. So thank you for the question. Um, and... Uh, hopefully that was that was helpful. Uh, let's see. Uh, P Dub is the handle. Question: I came up with a sports idea. Now the idea. Now this idea can be applied to multiple industries. I have two prototype designs for two different products in two different industries. Do I need one PPA or two? There's no reason why you can't cover that in in the same PPA. Um, P, P dub. Um, there's no reason. And, you know, you might have two different sell sheets, two different industries, two different list of companies that you're going to license to. And when you're, when you get interest from your first company and you're moving that deal forward, you can say, look, I'd like to be able to do this other version in this industry and hold that back because that one company is not in that industry and you want to do a different version for a different industry. And as long as that doesn't hurt them, 
and what they're doing, they should say, oh, I'm fine with that. That's not going to hurt our sales. So, but you should be able to do one PPA just fine there. It's only another 75 bucks. You could do one for the other one too. If you didn't want one company to see what you're doing in the other industry, you could do that. But why not? It just seems like a waste of money. I can't see any reason why not to put them both in one. And, um, you know, you don't license every product you work on. So the chances that you might license one and not both in both industries is fairly significant. So why not just throw it in one PPA? Uh, hi, Andrew. What is this is from John. What is your what is your opinion on going to DRTV companies to license? So, you know, I, we Steve and I have said this on many shows before. You know, DRTV is, you might know them as infomercials. They used to be called infomercials. Um, you know, they're, they're just a little sharky. You know, I mean, if you're really, some of the new inventors are really sketched out. All these companies are going to knock me off. And I haven't had one of our students get knocked up that I've known in, that I've known of in 21 years because our students are conducting themselves professionally. So yes, provisional patents, some protection. Yes, creating a paper trail with emails protection. But I think another huge form of protection is conducting yourself professionally. So for that three or 4% of companies that might knock you off, they see you know what you're doing and they don't wanna mess with you. But that wacky inventor from a year ago, they're like, that guy has no idea what he's freaking doing. And that three or 4% of companies that might consider knocking you off, and that's a random number by the way, um, is, is, is going to mess with that guy, but not you, because you know what you're doing. Okay. So um, now with that said, do I think that DRTV, there's a higher likelihood of getting knocked off? Yeah, I do. And there's a history, there's a track record there. You've, we've seen it. These DRTV companies knock each other off. They're a little get rich quickish. They make money. They want to make money really quick. You know, back in the day, they used to lose money, lose money, lose money on product over product. And then they get one that's working. And they run the heck out of it. And then they make all that money back they lost and then some. So it's almost like they're kind of gamblers. I think it's a lot less so these days. They're very careful about the products they take home, but they need to invest huge amounts of money. They offer huge minimum guarantees, too. So with them, you're either making a lot of money or nothing at all. Um, they're not going to sell. Oh, we'll just sell, you know. Oh, we'll sell 10,000 units or 20,000 units or 50,000 units. They want huge numbers or nothing at all. So my opinion about DRTV is if you're a little sketched out about possibly getting knocked off, I wouldn't do it. Maybe you get more comfortable with it. If you're okay with the risk and you are of a little like, I want to make a little bit more money quicker because you can do that with DRTV, um, but you can also make perfectly good money on other product categories. It's just more over time. DRTV, typically they blow it out really quick, really hard, and the product sells for a while. And some continue to sell, but some kind of taper off. So if you're okay with the risk, I think there's a little bit more risk with the DRTV guys. Um, I'd say go for it. But if you're a little sketched out by, you know, oh, I'm afraid of getting knocked off, don't do DRTV. All right, because they'll sketch you out because they are kind of trippy. They're a little sharky. I'm speaking in generalities and there's just so many, so much history there that can prove that. Um, so, but be willing to take that risk. If you're not willing to take that risk, don't do it. Um, and it is more risky than every other category. Um, so let's see. But I, I mean, I, I wouldn't hesitate to work on a DVD or TV product. I think it's fine. Uh, let's see. 
William, when you say auto aftermarket, does that include parts that are put on new cars as they are built that are supplied by outside suppliers or just things you would buy after and purchase if you purchase the car? You stick to the aftermarket companies when licensing, but I need a better definition of aftermarket. So what, yeah, we've had several people ask about automotive products. So if it's something that goes on the car at GM or Volkswagen or Mercedes or BMW, that is not aftermarket, that's OEM. So if if you want to, aftermarket is, is uh, new rims for your truck. It's, uh, it's an air freshener in your car. It's car seat covers. It's all sorts of a, a modified muffler system. There's just an insane numbers of automotive aftermarket products. Those are some funny examples, but there's a ton of them. If you guys are into automotive products, um, then you know what I'm talking about. And that's what I'm talking about, William. So it's something you buy after you get it from the factory. That's the way I would put it. Huge possibilities there to license to a Volkswagen or a GM. Uh, very, very, very difficult, pretty much almost not worth doing. Um, and I have a lot to back that up. Um, let's answer some questions from people we haven't got them from. Uh, Glenn said, I have a logo design idea for a sports team in the NHL. Can I get licensing agreement for the logo design? Um, okay, I have a logo design idea for a sports team in the NHL. Oh, that's the tough one. Can I get a licensing agreement for the logo design and get a royalty of everything sold with the logo on it? Whew, that's pushing it, man. Have you heard of such a thing? Um, I have students that have licensed artwork. I have June, um, and she's licensed like 80 pieces of her artwork to go on products. But that's not the NHL. You're, what you're doing is you're saying, I want to be the NHL's graphic designer and have a unique NHL design and get paid for that logo forever. That's awfully expensive for them. I mean, they got a million graphic designers. They can come up with logos. Um, you know, June, who's licensed like 80 pieces of her artwork, it's artwork to go on things like pot holders and towels and, and um, other products. And they're looking for artwork. And she sees that the company has artwork on their products and she approaches them with artwork pieces that she thinks would look good on their products. So she's not even licensing the product, but the artwork. So is that possible? Yeah. But why would the NHL want to pay you for your unique logo every time they put that on every product? Um, so I think it is a possibility, but I think it's an awfully expensive uh, graphic design piece, piece of graphic design work. Um, it'd have to be super unique and, and all that. And if you were to submit it to say all, all rights or of their respective trademark owners, they claim no rights for any of these just for illustrative purposes and do not put that up anywhere publicly, only privately. So I think it's possible. I think it's a big stretch. They have graphic designers, you know, it would have to be really, really special if you ask me, I think that's a hard one to pull off. They'd just rather use their own graphic design department. But I just talked about June. She had all sorts of artwork and she licensed these and it's easier for them. They don't have to license it from somebody else. From They don't have to look out for this artwork. She's kind of looked at their product line and see it's right. You might say, um, Glenn, well, that's what I did. I, I did something that I think they would like. So I think it's a possibility, 
But here's what the part that sucks. You're going to create this graphic design piece and you only have one potential licensee. I don't like those numbers. That's a giant waste of freaking time. June does artwork and she might approach 10, 15, 20 companies to license this artwork for their products. And you're approaching one. So I don't like it. And it's, it's, uh, I don't like the numbers, I should say. So, but if you didn't take a lot of time, you already designed it. Why the hell not? You know, um, Brandon said, I have a medical device idea. Found the patent is already out there, but did not see any with, with my, which was same, just, oh my God, guys, proofread this. But I did not see any with my, which was the same, just a simple clip on screw from others. Would this be design or utility? Okay, Brandon, uh, please be more clear next time, but um, but let, let's let's answer your question. You have a medical device. You found a patent. Uh, the patent is already out there, but you didn't see any any products in the marketplace. Okay, um, work around the patent. You know, work around work around the way it's done and do it a different way. If you believe the real the claims really protecting the way you're doing it, we'll do it slightly different. Most patents you can easily work around them, and you guys are like, oh, people can easily work around me, Andrew. Is that what you're saying? No. If you think about the variations and the workarounds, improvements, and you don't just include one version of it, you include those versions in your patent or provisional patent, you're covered. But a lot of people don't do that. So when they don't do that, you're giving, you have perfect right to do it a different way. So if you see this patent, then it's just exactly what you want to do, Brandon. Figure out a different way of doing it and don't worry about the patent. And if it has a benefit in the marketplace and it makes sense, then go ahead and do it. Okay. Mm, let's see. I want to get to some people uh, that I didn't get. So I'm just looking for names I haven't seen. Max said, I am totally ready to join and be coached by InventRight. Oh, cool, Max. Have you have you been attending for a while? Um, if you can answer me, that'd be great. So if you do want to join or anybody else does, you can go to inventright.com, click on the contact us button, and you can book with an advisor right there. Okay. Um Melanie said, should I consider additional protections beyond a PPA? Um, I can't provide you legal advice, Melanie, but I can tell you all our students just file a provisional patent application for 75 bucks and gives you a whole year to fish off the pier, see if there's interest. And if there is, get the company to give you the money to then you then pay your attorney to file the patent. Patent stays in your name. And your, your additional protections are creating a paper trail via email and also conducting yourself professionally. So being a little wacky and being off and having terrible marketing presentations and saying crazy things like I want a quarter million up front, that pisses companies off. And the few that are already a little borderline ethical, which is very few in my opinion, might just say, screw you. You know, like if I talked to an inventor where the, the company worked back and forth with him for like eight months and they spent, I think, $15,000 on prototypes and you know, and then they didn't have the discussion and the dude asked for a quarter million dollars up front. Now, it could easily be a product under a quarter million or more over time. That's just stupid. You never do that with licensing. So if you don't do stupid stuff like that and you clarify you're looking for a royalty and, you know, I, I think you're, you're pretty well protected. I can say that 
we've been doing this for 21 years, students in 65 countries over that time. And I haven't had a student that I'm aware of that's been knocked off by a company they showed to. Um, so those are pretty good numbers. Now, inventors out there outside of EventRight aren't doing everything right. And they are doing wacky stuff like that. And um, they're giving us all a bad name. So, uh, but, you know, good on them that they're trying to reach out and they're reaching out. They got interest from a company, but, you know, they just, people make up in their own head how to do this. And it's like, where did you hear that? It's like, well, it makes sense. That's what I should get. And it's like, okay. You know, I mean, if I don't, it's really weird. Some, for some reason, people with licensing, they make up the rules and then they go, well, that's correct. And I'm like, no, it's not. Um, and I don't know why people do that with, with licensing, but they do. Um, let's see. Uh, Tania, what, what about if it looks like one of the companies you're interested in contacting doesn't have much activity on LinkedIn? I don't care. Then pick up the phone and call them. We teach our students to reach out on LinkedIn and on the phone. So, um, you know, I, I don't, I don't care that, that they're not on LinkedIn. Um, what's nice is when they're on LinkedIn, you're like, oh, I can reach them there, a marketing manager, but I can also call them on the phone. And there's other techniques you can use. You can email them directly to different ways of getting their email address. So I think that's fine. I would, I would just call them. Um, that's perfectly okay. Um, so yeah, I mean, these are all, to answer Margie's question, these are all lessons I've learned over, I, I've, I've been doing InventRight for 21 years, and I ran an inventors association for 14 years. So I'm, there's a lot of things I don't know much about, um, but licensing isn't one of them. That's, that's like, I, I know it like the back of my hand. I don't know where that saying came, but I, I know it really, really well. Um, so yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, I can't even know this handle. Bed, beds, biz. Um, one time I personally heard from SC Johnson company that liked my idea, but stated their engineering department couldn't figure out how to create it. I felt gratefully grateful that they considered it. Well, yeah. I mean, you approach them with a product that you didn't know how to make. And sometimes you're like, I'm fairly certain they can do it. And we are students reach out all the time. And then they can figure it out from there. But you don't want to be the crazy inventor. Like, I got this robot. It jumps up on your roof and shingles it for you. And the company's like, well, how does that work? And you're like, I don't know, but I think it's a good idea. You should do it. You don't want to be that inventor. But sometimes you don't understand little pieces of it. And you hope that they can figure it out. And that's perfectly okay. I think it's great that you did that and you reached out. Um, that's fantastic. Especially with a company like SC Johnson. That's just a that's a tough one to get any communication with. I'm surprised you're in communications with them. That's pretty amazing. Um, they're, they're what I would call a, one of these mega corporations that are really impossible to work with. Um, uh, Anilton, hi, Andrew, I'm back. Welcome, Anilton. When a company tells me they're too busy for me for the year too busy for the year 2021 after asking me what percentage I was thinking of, should I respond with 7%? Uh, and you said it's a clipper company. So, um, well, 
I, I think what, what they're saying, uh, Anilton, is we're, we're interested, but we don't have the time right now to launch a new product. So 2022 is right around the corner. So um, usually you really want to have conversations with them before you discuss the percentage. And when they ask you, you shouldn't give a percentage. Say, well, that all depends on what you're going to do with the product and where it's going to be placed. And then I could come up with a term sheet. Um, but just to throw out 5% or 7% or something like that. Um, now, because they're not interested in doing it now, but maybe later, like I said, some inventors give us all a bad name. So they're asking for wacky stuff. So they may be trying to probe and just figure out if you're one of these wacky inventors going to ask for a quarter million up front or ask for 30% royalties or something like that. So the most common royalty rate um, is 5%. But it can vary. I would say two to ten percent is most is 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 a range there. But it's all relevant, you know. It's the price of the product, the royalty rate, and the volume they can sell. I don't care if you get a ten percent royalty if they're only going to sell a thousand units a year. Doesn't mean much, right? Um, so you don't you don't. I what I would respond with is not seven percent or five percent or what have you. Saying seven and then later agreeing to five would probably be good. I don't know all the, but I would say that it would just be a small royalty per unit. So when they get paid, you get paid. Um, but because they're really not moving forward now, I, I'm a little on the fence and I don't say this normally, you could throw out seven just so they have a feeling for it and go, cause that's not unreasonable. Um, you could throw it out, but um, you could also say, I'm just looking for a smoke. Then they're like, what does that mean? What does that mean? So you have to realize that some of these market managers, they're not doing licensing deals all the time. So they don't know. So they want to know, like, should I go to my boss and go, hey, this is a good one for 2020. And look, the inventor is not whacked out. They're reasonable. They're asking for 7%. So I would say this is an instance where you could say 7% and be willing to go down to five. But, you know, I'd say that might be okay. I don't really like that. I like having a conversation. I mean, I would say 9.5 times out of 10, but they're kind of cutting off the conversation. So it would be better if you had a conversation with them and saying, yeah, I'd be happy to talk to you about that. Can I get on the phone? And you say, hey, look, it's going to depend on. And, and also they, they might be able to articulate back to you what their schedule is. Look, we typically review products here and then we're going to launch products here. And, and just replying back to an email the 7% doesn't create a bond. So the other thing that I would say is, and I forget, Anilton, because you'd asked questions about this company before, if you're in co active conversations with them, if you're not, I would say absolutely 100% don't. Get on the phone with them, establish some rapport. Um, but if you've been in conversations with them, you could say seven, but um, generally it's, it's better to say I'm a small royalty per unit, but they don't know. They might think small is 20% or some because some inventor told them that. You know, so I think it might make sense if you've had a lot of communication with them and back and forth, not the email, but at least one or two calls on the phone. If you haven't, I get on the phone. I know you're real busy. Do you have 10 minutes to talk? And then you can figure out more importantly how to move this deal forward. What's their sticking points? Just too busy? Do they have some concerns about it? Maybe it's just a ploy to get you to give them a percentage when you didn't give it to them before. So these are the things that our negotiation codes helps strategize. I don't have all those data points, you know, so, but by and large, you, you just don't want to just give that up. Um, 
Wow, I don't even know how to say the handle. 36 Nick for Truth. Okay, hey, I did it. Uh, hi, Andrew. I have a product that is for aerospace. I It would fit best with multiple companies. Should I contact the military first or Boeing? Can I license for R&D? Because they'll be prototyping for years. So with a military type product, you know, you don't license to the military nine times out of 10. You're licensing the contractors that sell the military. So approach the contractors. But sometimes you can do some pull through marketing to approach the military and get their interest and then say, hey, should I work with one of your contractors to, to, to talk more about this? Then you could, if the military was interested, then you could tell certain contractors, hey, they really like it. So I would do both in that case. But you're going to be licensing nine times out of 10 to a contractor that sells the military, not the military themselves, but you could show it to them, they garner their interest and then tell the, the military contractors about it, about their interest level. So that was a pretty good answer, I think. Um, you have five minutes left and I think that's good because I'm getting tired here. My wife says I never get tired, but I was digging ditches yesterday in the backyard in 106 degree temperature. So I think today I actually genuinely feel tired. Um, I'm not kidding, by the way. Uh, let's see. Okay. Uh, Ursan, what if I have a bunch of research, you, after a bunch of research, you realize that most of the primary manufacturers in a niche industry are based in China do you attempt to work with them or give up? So the question is, they might be the manufacturers, but they're at the marketing company. A lot of people will make, they'll, they'll, they're U.S. companies or Canadian companies or European companies, and they're getting it made in China, but it's not the Chinese company that's marketing it. So they're just making it for them. So I would approach the American, Canadian, European company that is making it and selling it. Um, it's not... It's getting, it's changing on Amazon, um, but uh, a lot of times it's not the Chinese company that's marketing it. Um, I mean, if you look at the horrendous English on Amazon, you can tell it's somebody in China posting it. It's gotten really bad. It's gotten to the point where you like, you start to think it's normal um, for this terrible English on Amazon. Um, but a lot of those aren't, they're not, the ones that don't have those terrible postings they're Americans, for example, getting it made in China and they're posting it on Amazon. But those Amazon companies aren't always the companies you want to approach. You know, approaching major manufacturers that have distribution on Amazon in the stores, brick and mortar, can be a really a way to go. Um, so, um, yeah, are you going to be less likely to license? You're going to license to a Chinese company? Probably not. Now, we've had, uh, I remember there was. Two, two months in a row, it was kind of a trip. We had an Israeli student that uh, licensed an entire new type of toilet to a Chinese manufacturer. But here's the deal. The Chinese manufacturer had distribution at Home Depot. They were actually selling their product in Home Depot. So to me, there's no difference between that Chinese manufacturer and an American company because they have distribution. So you don't want to reach out to Chinese manufacturers that just make stuff. You don't reach out to a, a manufacturer that has distribution now in big box retailers and major distribution. And so to me, that was OK, because that Chinese company had a toilet or toilets in Home Depot. 
So they had distribution there in the U.S. They have to abide by U.S. laws with your U.S. provisional and you're good to go. Now, I had another guy who was actually French Canadian, but he lived in the Yukon. It's a lot of geography here. And he licensed an entire line of like 12 camping products to a Chinese company. But again, that Chinese company had distribution in major retailers, which is still fairly uncommon. So um, if they have distribution at major retailers in the U.S., they're selling in the U.S., they need to buy by U.S. patent laws. Um, that's fine. But most of the time, you're not going to be licensing the Chinese companies. So if you're you know, you might be looking at the one selling on Amazon and that, that might be true. Like, but is a Chinese company that's just dumping crap on Amazon and they're terrible English. They don't have a brand. So that that's where you, that's where you differentiate things. Do they have a brand? Do they have a company with an entire product line? Or are they just somebody importing crap and dumping it on the market? So that's the, the litmus test. And if it's a Chinese company and they have a brand and they have distribution and in all sorts of sporting good retailers and stuff, I don't see that as any different than a U.S. company. You know? But if they're just a contract manufacturer, then it's not the same. Um, uh, Max said, it's been a while since I have gotten uh, on here to watch and want you to know. I really appreciate you, Andrew. Thank you, Max. And actually love your upfront honesty. Yeah, it's just the way we are. It's not just me. That's the way we are in Mint Right. No, no BS. So I that's the greatest compliment you could you could pay it, pay me. Um, the other compliment that you guys could do or a, as a thank you is if you're not subscribed to our YouTube show, click on that little, is it red? I think it's red. Click on the little subscribe button. Now, and then just watch a whole bunch of videos, click thumbs up on stuff. Um, if you want to comment on stuff too, that's how you're helping us. We just hit 50,000 subscribers. I would like to hit 80,000 within eight months. I like to do 10. And so if you found this entire hour of me doing free question and answer, people are amazed that we do that, um, uh, was helpful to you. Please, at the very least, if you can, um, subscribe to the channel, watch our videos, give this one a thumbs up. If you guys could all give this one a thumbs up. Now, if you're already subscribed, don't click on it again. Then it will unsubscribe you. But click, give it a thumbs up, subscribe, all that cheesy stuff people say on YouTube normally, how you can help them. And I just want to thank you guys. Um, I really, I, I'd like to get some feedback real quick. Do I go too fast? Or I, I think that most of you like that I cover so much. I try to, I know I speak really fast, but to hear somebody speak super slow for an entire hour and I feel like I probably answer three times the amount of questions that some other people might. And I give a lot of detail, too. I don't just try to answer the person's question, but I try to make it valuable for everybody. So if you guys have any feedback, positive, negative, um, I'm up for it. You guys can type in. Let's see. Okay, good. I, I'm, nobody said anything. So I think you guys are liking it. That's the feedback I normally get. It's great. Yeah, people are giving. A lot of people are saying, uh, David said, I appreciate that you're able to cover a lot of topics within an hour. Yeah, I think I do a lot. No, not too fast from Margie. I like that you get through many questions. Um, Robert said, Andrew, I think your timing and frankness is perfect. Okay, good. So you guys are liking it. It's all good. Um, if you didn't, to be honest with you, it's just who I am, how I work. So I don't know what I would change. I don't know if I'd be able to slow down. 
Um, I know that some of it you guys aren't completely getting. It's a li- licensing could be a little bit of a brain fart for lack of a better term. But if you just got a few great tidbits, hopefully you guys leave with that. Um, I want to. I haven't left with this in a long time. For most of you, probably about ninety-five to ninety percent of you, this is part of who you are. You just started coming up with ideas one day, and so it's so cool for Stephen Key or other co-founder, myself, all our coaches, everybody at the company, to empower people to do something that's so important to them, and to take people from just dreaming about it to actually doing it. And yeah, the part that we're doing is it's it's a painful step to go from dreaming or just throwing money at pat attorneys and messing around with prototypes to actually putting yourself out there. And that's a really big step. So just by listening to this, you're putting yourself out there. And hopefully, whether you're doing it on your own or you're signing up for a coaching program on inventright.com, that you do get out there and you do start to put your products in front of companies because nothing can happen until you put your first product in front of your first company. So whether you're doing that with our help, whether it's free help through YouTube or our books like One Simple Idea, or you're signing up for a coaching program to guide you through it, um, do it. It's so unlikely that you're going to get ripped off or screwed like everybody thinks. It's very, very unlikely. Um, it can happen once in a while, but it's very rare. It hasn't happened to one of our students in 21 years. But, you know, our coach is so on top of our students. Our coaches are really on top of our students. So I think that's – and then then they're off on their own. We won't want to let people go free, and then they're off on their own. They can do this for the rest of their life. So I do encourage you. It is part of who you are. Nobody says one day, I want to be an inventor. You just start to come up with ideas. And we know that. We appreciate that. And we realize this is more than just teaching you how to sell on Amazon or how to make money on Google AdWords, or how to make money in real estate. All that is like get rich quick crap. And it's valid to do those types of things. But we know that this is part of who you are and we respect that. And um, sometimes people give inventors a hard time. I think that's BS. Um, do I give people a little bit of hard time when they do the wacky stuff? And do I want to keep you guys from doing that? Yes, because I want to help you. I want you to be successful. So with that, I want to just say take care, keep inventing, and we'll catch with you guys next time. See you guys. Bye.